Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is uh, co-host Jessica Hines of Meditative Writing. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. And our special guest today is Malcolm Chang. Malcolm is the third generation Chinese South African who is both a lawyer and a part of the oppressed minority in apartheid South Africa with uh, firsthand knowledge of the Byzantine uh, laws that upheld the system and its effect on minorities. He currently lives in New York, where he is the um, president of the Newtown Literary Alliance, and his work has appeared in Newtown Literary Journal, Gravel, and Queensbound. His story, The Cruelty of Children, was nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you, thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off with, you know, um, telling us a little bit of inside a look on your early life and uh, how you, um, you you're being a lawyer and how that and how that informs or maybe now when you, you were a lawyer earlier on and uh, in your early career and uh, how did that change or did you have when you became a writer or, or at what point was there a threshold where you're like, I wanted to to write poetry or and write in general? Yeah. Yeah. I think in general. Lawyers are wordsmiths. They deal with meaning of words every day. And um, I think as a trial lawyer, you're a natural storyteller. You have to convince the jury or the judge of, of a particular point. Uh, I think it's a natural extension. And given my background, um, which was so rich in um, uh, material, that um, it grew from wanting to get down a memoir or a, a autobiography-based uh, story to just writing about um, my experiences in general. And that, that just led to um, other avenues, fiction, poetry, all expressions of literature. Wow, wow. cool, cool. And, um, you know, you were saying a little bit in the preview questions about the, the aspects of being dispassionate versus empathy, that's a really interesting category. I, th- I think you're saying uh, how a lawyer has to be dispassionate and maybe a poet has to be very empathetic. And is that something that you feel is, was you had to like make a break and be like, all right, I'm not, I'm going to st- take out that, that had of being that objective, you know, dispassionate person and trying to, uh, trying the had of being that very empathetic and seeing the stories and all that kind of thing. Yeah. I think being empathetic is always part of your personality. Mm. But it, it gets trained out of you oh, to an extent <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as a lawyer. Yeah. Because, you know, th- there's that famous story, and it's repeated many times, but I think it appeared in Dickens that he said, please just, just give me a lawyer with one hand. Oh, yeah. Because lawyers are always saying, on the one hand, this. On the one hand, oh, <laughs> nice. Hand, so, yeah. But the client always wants a lawyer just with uh-huh. one hand. Um, so being dispassionate, uh, it helps as a lawyer because you need to know your client's story. And you need to know what your adversary might come up with so that you can counter it. So you have to know both sides of, of the debate. But also, um, you have to be passionate to a certain extent as a lawyer to advocate for your own client's position. Mm. Um, and there are certainly things that I did um, that, 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 that as, as part of the legal profession that don't always jive with your personality. Mm. You know, litigators tend to be very uh, type A uh, personalities. They're very adversarial. And if you're not that type of personality, it, it can really mess with your mind. Mm. Um, so you have to find outlets for it. 
and, and you, a lot of people find outlets in creativity. And I think that's uh, partly my story, that you, you, you just look for the creative parts of, of, uh, of the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got a couple of writers that I mentor who um, are, are lawyers. Like they yeah. come from, and and so sometimes when I meet people and they're just like, "Oh, well, you know, I'm a lawyer. Can I, you know, write the screenplay?" And I'm like, "Yes." I'm like, "It's yeah. been bottled up inside of you," and like, <laughs> and I see it as the only like most of the lawyers I know. It's like there's there's a passion for the game of the argument and the art of the of the debate and the argument yes. in that where because if you can't really put your passion in, you can't base it off something that is you know, the other people involved because otherwise those emotions would get in the way, I think. And so to have an outlet where you can take that passion and use it in a freer form, in a way where, you know, no one loses their home because of a poem, or at least as far as I know. And if you know anyone who has, let me know, because that would be a very interesting (laughs) story. But like one of my favorite things I tell people, I'm like, no one ever dies of having written a bad scene. Yeah. Um. And so it's it's a very sick because sometimes as writers that I'm sure you guys have felt this where it's like you get so scared or you're writing something and it feels so overwhelming as if there's so much at stake, even though you're just like sitting in a coffee shop and no one's going to read this. And, you know, I tell people, I'm like, listen, if you were a doctor, a mistake could be deadly. If you were an engineer, this mistake could be deadly if you're a firefighter. But I was like, we're writers. I'm like, the only thing that dies is your ego, which is yeah. actually a, a lovely death. And so <laughs> it, it never surprises me when people because especially the complexity of the mind that and the work ethic that I think you have to go through in order to be a lawyer is very transferable to the amount of work um, that it takes to to be a writer and get your work out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because um, being a lawyer, um, you always feel that it's you. You're never building anything. Mm. Being a lawyer, especially a trial lawyer, you're, you're tearing stuff down. Yeah. When there's a lawsuit, someone's got to lose. So, you know, there's, there's got to be winners and there's got to be losers. Um, but as a writer, you can definitely be a boulder. Yeah. So that, 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 that was important as well. So let's get a little bit into, um, you know, you were talking in your bio about uh, the knowledge of, the, uh, of how the laws upheld that system of apartheid and and uh, and it's a fact. So why don't we talk a little bit about that and, and what your understanding is and and your experiences in that and we can kind of maybe make some connections with um you know the political climate and other places and things like that yeah, in America or whatever. Right. Yeah. So um, you know apartheid uh, officially began in 1948, although it had existed you know long before then. But the National Party government that came into power in 1948 really uh, codified it and solidified it. And they started introducing all of these laws that were intended to separate the races. Uh, The most prominent of them being the Group Areas Act, where they uh, put people in little boxes all over the country. And, of course, the white boxes were much prettier than the the black boxes. Um, and they had things like the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act, and they had something called the Immorality Act, which pre- prevented sex between the races. Mm. But what it really did was prevent sex between white people and people of color. Um, within the, the spectrum of color of the other South Africans, they, they didn't really mind that much. So uh, Chinese, Indians, 
black people, so-called coloreds. Uh, I say so-called coloreds because colored has a particular um, terminology in South Africa. A, a, a colored was a person who was of mixed race, or it was a person from really the Cape Province where the first settlers um, had sex with uh, the Bushmen, basically, the Khoi people. Um, so the Khalids was a definite uh, category. Mm-hmm. Now, the way apartheid worked is that they had a sliding scale with whites at the top, blacks on the bottom, and everyone else in between. And for people like the Chinese at the time that I was born, only constituted maybe twelve to 15,000 people out of a population of 35 million. We were such a small minority that the government really didn't know what to do with us. Mm. So what they, what they did have is economic ties and trade ties with Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. So the Koreans, Japanese, and Taiwanese were granted honorary white status. So they were they received some of the privileges of, of being white. And because they couldn't tell the difference between Chinese and Koreans, for instance, or Chinese and Japanese, the, the, the local Chinese population kind of slid by and uh, we kind of existed under the radar. But we were still subject to uh, the group areas. Um, it started easing up a little bit as I grew, but um, we still had, if we wanted to live in a white area, we had to get the permission of the neighbor to the left, right, in front of us and behind us to actually rent or buy a house in the white area. And if any one of them had objected, then we couldn't, we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And that law went on right until 1984, until it was uh, finally uh, taken off the books. Wow. Yeah. And then, um, so now what, what do you think about how we have these, you know, kind of, we, we talk, we talk a little bit about, uh, you know, now most of your career was now at what point did you, now you were born here or you were born, you were born in South Africa, right? Or, I was born in South Africa. And then what point did you immigrate here? And when, when did you practice, uh, the law practice, were you practicing or what time did you, what age did you immigrate? Yeah, I immigrated, uh, when I was 30. 30. Yeah. But uh, I had been practicing law in South Africa okay, yeah. um, from my uh, 20s. 20s, yeah. Um, the impetus, actually, for our decision to emigrate was, um, there, was an, uh, there was a mass shooting right in the middle of the capital city, Pretoria. The man's name was Hendrik Barenstredom. And he went into, actually, Stradom Square which um, was a monument to one of the previous uh, prime ministers. And he just started shooting anybody who was not white. And um, it was such a horrific incident that my wife and I decided that we didn't want our children growing up in that kind of environment. Mm. Um, And that was the impetus to leave. And what year was this that you immigrated? That was uh, 1990. 1990, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And uh, then you came here and you you kind of uh, practiced law. 
or would you start the practice? Or, or no. So what I what I did yeah. was we we first emigrated to Toronto, mm. um, but we only lasted about less than a year mm. there because uh, I had a two and a half hour commute in one direction. My wife had a one and a half hour commute in the other direction, and I, oh. <laughs> our daughter was spending at least you know. 10 hours in daycare. Oh, yeah. That wasn't tenable. Yeah. After that, we moved to Chicago for a while because fortunately my wife was able to, being in IT, um, she was able to get a job. And we wanted to go to California, but they said, would you mind stopping off in Chicago for three months? Which turned out to be a year, but it was great. Yeah. <laughs> Watch yeah. the Bulls win the championship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we ended up in California where I, I did the bar exam and okay. I, I did a, had a solo practice there um, for twenty years. Okay, and then you moved to New York, or then we moved to New York. To, yeah, yeah, good, good. And what was it like to? Um, kind of, what, what would you see as the major differences, or what is some uh, highlighting some things of you know practicing law in South Africa and then practicing law in America, and how what what kind of things can you highlight? A few things that in the in the law or in the in your experience of uh, studying the different laws or practicing or whatever. The biggest, I think the biggest difference in America is that you have a constitution mm. and the constitution informs and is used to judge all other laws. Mm. In South Africa, you have basically a civil code. And um, so whereas the constitution in a sense um, makes reference to, or doesn't make specific reference, but it, it really references a natural law, a law that exists outside of man. Mm. In South Africa, which uh, was based on Roman law and Roman Dutch law, it's a civil code. So anything that exists, exists because parliament put it um, in place, which is why things like the apartheid laws could not be challenged because the government was the ultimate authority. So that, that is a huge, huge difference. Uh, the other thing that I found different when we were doing, when I was doing the bar exam, is that um, in each state, it's very they have a very different emphasis. There are things like uh, civil procedure and criminal procedure that are the same. But for instance, in Texas, you, you'd study like mineral rights. You wouldn't do that in California. Mm. So you know, each state has its own emphasis, and um, in the states, you have to pass the bar exam in every state that you want to practice. Yeah. So that was the impetus for me, not practicing law in New York. Because <laughs> yeah. At my age, I would have had to retake the bar exam. That, yeah. that, that, was, a, that was a very daunting and just too exhausting to contemplate. Yeah. So um, I'm interested in the story, uh, The Cruelty of Children, that was nominated for the Pushkosh Prize. And tell us a little bit about that story and how and a little bit of how, what that's about and such, yeah. So I'm also doing a series of memoir-based stories. Mm. And this, this story was about uh, when I was in boarding school, I must have been about nine or ten, and I had a best friend, who, um, a Jewish best friend, and his mother was very ill. And um, basically the story is that I was, I was like the leader of this little group of, of boys. 
and whatever I say went. And uh, this friend of mine, Sammy, he managed to find other friends, which I didn't particularly enjoy at the age of 10, particularly since I, I saw myself as the leader. And his mother was very ill, and eventually she passed away. And I treated him extremely badly. And at one point, I even told him that I was glad that his mother had died because he, in some way, had slighted me. And his response was absolutely devastating. Up to that time, he had not had any outward um, expression of his grief. But when he heard those words from me, um, he just fell apart. And um, I ended up being ostracized by the dormitory and by the rest of the school, and, um, and rightly so. And I was glad of it. And a few days later, this friend who I'd, I'd had for two years um, left to live with relatives elsewhere, and I, I never saw him again. Uh, and basically, that was the story of how I, I lost a, a good friend by just basically being a dick. Yeah, <laughs> the, cruel, the cruelty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think cool, it's yeah. I think it's just so interesting how um, I don't know. I just find it so much easier to to hurt people that you care deeply for. Mm. Because it's like, you know, you have that flare of passion in a moment where you want to like hurt them Mm. or you want to like hurt. Like, I've never felt that for like strangers. You know what I mean? It's only like it's I mean, mostly my sisters because God bless my sisters. I love them so much, but they trigger me so much. And I just I think about some of the the moments of like, what is the worst thing that's come out of my mouth? Mm. You know, and I think about the very cutting things or just the, and that, you know, it requires an openness on both people's hearts to be able to throw that dagger and for it to land. Mm. And I think that it's, you know, something that right now in our culture, like we have this screen we hide behind with social media to be able to throw so many more daggers and then to throw them in ways where now I feel can feel that cutting remark just from a troll on the internet. And it actually does hurt me on a deeper level than like if a person in front of me were saying, if they were saying it in front of me, I'd be like, Oh, you're just having a bad day. Well, I'm like, Oh, you're just, but for some reason it's like, it's almost like we project or when I read words like that, it's like, I see my sister or someone who mm. knows me mm. saying it. And it's just such a fascinating thing about, you know, I think we've all done that. I think all of us have said something that really devastated someone we love and we've all had that done to us. And, you know, but the ability to at least acknowledge it and then like be like, wow, I never want to, I want to make sure I never do that ever again. Yeah. I think also like being vulnerable with uh, each other is what, you know, we're kind of at, we're kind of requesting our, our confidants and and we're, we're, we're kind of exposing these deep truths that we haven't, really quite, I don't know, process or which we're processing or help asking these people to help us and our friends and our, our, our family and on things like that. And then we're kind of holding that space for them. But then when, when, when there's a little bit of a flighty, um, you know, insult or whatever it is, then we suddenly, you know, we remember that vulnerability and that's really where that's the processing. Almost part of that processing is to, 
to go after that particular thing. Yeah. You or know? This, yeah. the practice of remaining yeah. open hearted. Yeah, yeah, is, it's so important. Like, yeah. like I, I have to work yeah. on that so much, yeah. and you know, it's. I don't know. I think I think I think it just comes down to trust and understanding the difference between the intention versus the action of someone, and yeah. knowing that you know, was this something that was done with the long-term intention to hurt versus like a flare-up of a passionate moment, mm-hmm. you know, like with a child, like when a child, I feel like when you see a five-year-old scream, I hate you to their mom, right? Yeah. You're just like, oh, little Jim, <laughs> like, yeah. look at how passionately you feel, right? And and so whenever uh-huh. I'm, you know, especially if I'm dating someone, you know, or if I have someone in my home that I care about and 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 it gets to a point where there's yelling or there is where I can see words are flying out of a mouth without empathy and compassion because they've been pushed to that point. And I just always, I'm like, I try to look at that person as if they were a six-year-old throwing Mm -hmm. a temper tantrum in a supermarket. And I'm like, okay, like I, I can hold space for this person to allow this energy to dissipate and just speak to like the child and then speak to the part of them that I know loves me because otherwise they wouldn't have such a strong reaction. Mm. Um, and like that's just been this amazing practice that I started practicing when I was honestly trapped in like a very abusive relationship. And I had to kind of like plan a way out because of our living situation. And, you know, but I do think it's a good thing to practice is this idea of knowing that I think most of the times when we hurt each other, it is not intentional. And and mm. I think that if there is this ability for us to be like, hey, you know, you as my friend, like we're going to tag team playing the adults and the child in our relationship. And, you know, like if that's an agreement we can both have, then as long as it evens out on an okay amount where we're going back and forth, that we can provide that space. Because I just think there are parts of us that are always children and will never grow up. Mm. And it's, I just think it's unfair for us to ask that every part of you is as mature as the age that you are, because I know that there are (laughs) pockets of me that are like, three years old or infant baby that just hasn't had the chance to, you know, grow up. And so, and I think that that's a good thing to think about for yourself as well, because I think self-compassion is something that most people lack and the ability to forgive themselves and to, to nurture the part of them that is still a child. Yeah. Um, Malcolm had a really interesting idea or a thought about um, the word Sonder, Sonder and uh, how, tell us a little bit about what your realization or when you came across that word and, and when, and what that really what that triggered in you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the dictionary of obscure sorrows is, is actually a project that was created, I think in 2006 by this poet, uh, I can't remember his name, like John Kriegler or something like yeah. that. And he came up with words for emotions that, that don't exist. I mean, not that the emotions don't exist, but the words to describe it don't yeah. exist. And um, I think I came across it like in an internet meme. Uh, mm. Sonder. Yeah. And that it just really struck me when I read it, that, that uh, basically it, it's the realization that people that you pass by every day have lives that are just as complex and interesting as your own. And that's something that you don't really think about because you're so involved yeah. in your own life. Yeah. You, you're the star of your own show. But you have to realize that everyone is the star of their mm-hmm. own show. Mm. And it's, it opened up this world for me where I would pass people by in the street and try to imagine what was going on in their lives. 
and I would create little scenarios about them, you know, sitting at a table, discussing their day with their significant other or handling their children. Um, and I think the basis of it is empathy, the understanding that other people have uh, just as important lives as your own. Yeah. I, I think it's, yeah, it's so, it, I mean, it's great for emotional intelligence and empathy and connection. And I agree, like, to me, like, as a screenwriter, I'm like, that's my job. Like, yeah. I just literally walk around and yeah. I'm just like, all right, if this train ride was a film, yeah. you know, like, if this person was the protagonist, this is where we'd be. And, that you know, and just this idea of knowing that, like, everyone thinks of things so linearly, you know, yes. and so flat in front of them. And I'm like, no, 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 it's like a spider web, but it's like a thousand spider webs that are flared into this three-dimensional sphere of storylines that are interconnected, which I can't believe I'm going to make a reference to Marvel movies, but actually I'm like, Oh my God, it's kind of like the Marvel franchise where, where it's like, you see all these characters come together in these single moments, which are the Avenger movies. But then there's all these other storylines yeah. that branch out into their own lives. And even though I do feel like it's cool, they have a lot of diversity and I'm happy about that. But I think it's funny because they're robbing the industry of diversity by monopolizing so much of it. And this very complicated paradox of the film world but it is, I think, having that complexity and holding that complexity uh, in your mind when you look around the world makes it so much easier for you to act from your best self. Mm -hmm. And I think it's what I would call curiosity and how curiosity fosters connection and fosters storytelling and just can relieve yourself of the weight of your own story, right? I, mm. I think I became a storyteller because I was like, I can't handle my own shit right now. <laughs> let me just, let me just disappear into this character story. Let me just for a moment, talk to this writer and put all of my energy into someone else. So I can forget about the weight of my backstory and, and the next thing that's going to happen to me. And, and if anyone out there hasn't practiced it, I highly recommend just going out and observing and getting curious about other people and see if for like, a full 20 minutes, you can actually leave your body and your mind and get lost in their story. And it's yeah. like a little mini vacation from yourself, <laughs> which maybe other people don't need, but I certainly feel like I yeah. need sometimes. It's a good exercise anyway, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. just to be um, curious um, about other people. So the other thing that I've, I've done that I, that I do is when I'm on the train and I'm, I'm just looking at people, instead of Instead of looking at my phone, I look at other people and um, I try to imagine their lives and then I try and think of something complimentary to say about them, mm. just, just based on what I see. Yeah. I'd, I'll, I'll look at a woman and say, oh, she's, she's got nice eyes. Mm. Or I'll look at a man and say, oh, he's got strong hands. Mm. And I'll make my way around the trend until I, 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 I can say something nice about every person that I've seen on the train. Yeah. And it's, it's a great way to get over yourself. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. So why don't we take a moment to listen a little bit to your, your writing and you can set up uh, a little bit of, of where it's from. And I understand you're, you're working on, or you finished a novel and you're shopping it. So uh, people listening can uh, get a little taste of your writing. Yeah. Right. So um, this novel that I wrote is, it's a fictional autobiography of the man who assassinated the South African Prime Minister in 1966. Mm. The Prime Minister at the time was Hendrik Verwoerd, and he is known as the architect of apartheid. 
the man who assassinated him was a uh, a man of mixed race, Greek father, uh, colored mother, who was basically ostracized and abandoned and left to wander the world. And he, at some point, began to fixate on Hendrik Vervoort as the cause of all his problems. Mm. Now, it's not to say that this this he was a political animal, but he also had some mental issues. And um, one of the things that he did say that they seized upon was that he had a tapeworm inside of him that talked to him and uh, sometimes egged him on. I, so um, I told it basically from um, this man's point of view. Um, all right, so this is basically the prologue. Caledon Police Station, 1966. I could hear it whistle before I felt it, but by then I didn't have time to flinch. Such a clever, cruel instrument, the shambok. Just a tapered length of hard, flexible plastic, with the handle at the thick end and pain at the other. Native herders used it on cattle, and policemen used it on the natives. When Bantu rioters see a line of advancing policemen with shamboks, they scatter like they are being chased by snarling dogs. The average sadist hits you all over with it, back, legs, neck but an expert will pick one spot and aim for the same place every time. First it stings, and then it bruises, and then it cuts you to pieces. But there were no writing crowds in the basement cell, and the shambok was just for me. It sliced through the air, then it hit bit into my back. I screamed after each stroke. It did no good to be a hero and take it without a sound. It just made them hit harder. Two of them held my arms so that I was stretched around a concrete pillar in the middle of the room. The other one took a few steps back between each stroke so that he could wind up properly. When they let go my hands, I fell to the floor. You bastard, the guard panted in my ear. He grabbed me by the hair and turned my head so that he could spit in my face. Bastard. Someone brought a bucket of salt water and poured it over me. The liquid was cool and lovely at first, but then the salt hit the raw skin. Might as well have been acid. I screamed until I was hoarse. Then they switched places so that everyone could take a turn. When I was nothing but a puddle of blood and piss on the floor, they picked me up and sat me down to take my statement. My ears were ringing and my back was peeling off me in strips. I couldn't think straight. Did I really do what they said? Maybe it was a dream. I did remember a few things. I remember how sunny it was that day, a perfect spring morning. I remember the feel of the Spanish steel in my hand. I remember the look on his face when he really saw me for the first time. Not just a nobody in a blue uniform, not a nameless pest he could swat like a fly. I'm not your messenger boy. I'm not here to bring you your tea or your papers. No, I'm the angel of death and today's judgment day. I didn't actually say that. I should have. I'm always thinking of something clever to say afterwards when it's already too late. And I remembered the to-do afterwards. Christ. After they caught on what was happening, everyone was flapping their arms and running around like the pigeons in the park when a dog runs by. What to do? What to do? 
Some of the MPs got to me first. There were so many they dragged me to the ground and stomped on my hand so that I would drop the knife. All the while the honourable members were shouting and cursing and piling on top of me, swearing like sailors. Then red-faced policemen pulled them aside, swinging truncheons and kicking me with their steel-toed boots whenever there was an open spot, first in the head and then my back, and when I curled in, and then I curled into a ball. I held my hands over my face, and they were sticky with blood that dripped into my eyes. I couldn't tell if it was mine or his. Yeah, that's good. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's really great. I just, it was coming up for me about, um, while listening to that, is, you know, the, the um, result, you know, what they think about when, when trying to fight demons, we become a demon, you know, or the, the Nishi quote, I think it was Nishi who said that, yeah. uh, about, uh, you know, wrestling with demons, you know, and how, you know, maybe the aspect of like, you know, the oppression and, and, and being being down uh, and how that conjures up all these like, you know, violent or, or um, you know, kind of. And the same kind of, you know, we become almost like the same. We've shared that biology, you know, with the, the person who's, who's beating it down. You know, what do you think or what's your take on that? Yeah, so um, basically I ask the question in this novel mm. whether it is, is Dimitri's offenders who is mad mm. or the system that spawned him. Yeah. And the, the system has violence built into its DNA. Yeah. Um. So there's this this ongoing tension about who's the crazy one here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I think yeah. there's such a correlation between um, the psychology of the system and the psychology of the mind of every individual mm -hmm. in it, and I think it feeds each other back and forth. But you know, even in America, if you look at just the way that America, America's DNA, not only the the documents that we have and the wording like all landowning men, right, mm -hmm. which which gives Lots of freedoms to landowning men, a.k.a. rich white men um, yeah. and rich straight white men, you know, so uh, and rich straight Christian white men. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and that gets defined. But also just the way that, you know, if you really do study how America, you know, became America, it's very different than I think the history books would say. And you start to learn that, like, oh, like there's such a deep history of, you know, of, of gangs and mobs and, and making mm -hmm. use. And then like it's like no wonder you know, we have this psychology where when a system is built one way, but everyone keeps telling you that it's another way. It's like there's this this disassociation between your body and your mind because your body is like, but it's this way. But your mm. conscious mind is like, oh, but everyone says it's this way. And so there starts to become this 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 uh, dissonance that I think manifests itself as a part of you that's like then gets said called mental illness in a yeah. way. Because I think we are so not in harmony with so many things and like with nature and everything that, mm. you know, I, I just feel like that's totally interconnected and that, you, you know, it's like the chicken or the egg situation, which mm -hmm. is, you know, did this person's mind create this thing or did this system create this mind that created this thing? And yeah. um, I thought it was so lovely how you the placement of the location of the starting point. Mm -hmm. And especially with this feeling where I was like, first like, oh, like, I'm like, oh, where am I? What's going on? And then we get to this one place that I thought was really beautiful where um, when when the character's like, oh, like, I'm always thinking of something great afterwards, which I think is one of the most yeah. universal <laughs> things anyone has. Ever. And I was yeah. like, I was like, oh, my gosh, how smart, like how beautiful yeah. to like, because at that moment I was like, oh, I'm like them. And yeah. just creating that connection with a character who I think would be so easy to demonize and to have 
make it difficult for people to put themselves in, in the shoes of that person. And clearly, I think the practices you have on the train have probably made it so that, you know, you could do that as an artist and a writer to to start with someone who has done something that most of us have never done and, and will never do, but still make us feel like we are the one who is a part of it and, and, and to understand that person. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's excellent yeah. that you were able to do that so quickly in that piece. I definitely agree that, um, just dovetailing the pathology of the system, pathology of society become, uh, the pathology of the individual. And we mm-hmm. see it in the individual, we try to think of it separate, but actually it's very intimate and connected to, you know, how the DNA of the, of the system, as you're saying. And I'd be curious to get into like, um, philosophies and, and different guiding principles like you know we think about philosophies as being even philosophies themselves are kind of connected to the societies and systems that created them but we think about sometimes you know them as pure thought or or you know introducing some kind of uh philosophical system into this thing so um what were some of the guiding um philosophical systems growing up and and coming to, to now you mentioned uh confucianism as being uh one of the one of the things that influenced you so if you tell us a little bit about about that and, and the guiding systems of thought that um, um, kind of influenced you, yeah. Right, so we were very far removed by the time I was born from our Chinese origins. Yeah. Um, and what my parents and grandparents wanted most of all was to assimilate. Mm. So even though I did not go to a Chinese school, although a Chinese school existed. Yeah. At home, they practiced all of the old customs. But it, it gets to a point where people practice customs without knowing their origins. Mm. And then it just becomes habit. And when you ask someone, you know, why, why do we do this? Why do we go to the cemetery on this day? It's a well, we always do on this yeah. day, you know? yeah. <laughs> and nobody quite knows exactly what it is. But, you know, part of Confucianism is a, an outsized respect for authority. And as a Chinese person which, with such a small population, with no voting leverage whatsoever, you're beholden to whatever the authorities can grant to you. Mm. And you're always very aware that it could be taken away at any time. So the Chinese generation that preceded me were very much about not rocking the boat, not making waves, not being the tall poppy. Um, and it manifests itself, um, particularly amongst the, Ch- the Chinese, of being apolitical, putting your head down, studying hard, becoming the doctor or the accountant or the lawyer. Um, but for some of us, education becomes the tool by which you liberate yourself from those, um, from those attitudes. Mm. And particularly as a lawyer, when you're a law student and you're, you're exposed to everything that the government has done and all the absurd laws that are passed, you can't be quiet, you know, anymore. 
Um, I went to a very liberal university. Uh, Witts University in Johannesburg is the largest university, I think, in the country, except for the University of Cape Town. And that had a very liberal bent. And many of those students and teachers uh, became members of the National Education Union of South Africa, which um, was part of an umbrella body that agitated um, politically where the ANC could not because it was banned. So um, a lot of people, Johnny Clegg, the famous um, South African musician who passed away recently, was a um, teacher of anthropology at Wits University. Mm. Um, and his music is overtly political, most of it. Yeah, we'll be listening to one of his songs, The Crossing, I think you suggested, yes. right? Yeah. And he, so. he, he did a famous song called Asin Bonanga. Mm -hmm. And he wrote that about Nelson Mandela and Steve Biko and all the people who had been disappeared by the South African government. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up in that environment in a, in a very liberal university. And um, it, it just affected the way I think to this day. Yeah, I, I also what resonated with me was the, the um, commentary on, you know, my parents immigrated here and uh, the commentary on assimilation and the desire to assimilate. Um, you know, like uh, growing up in, in, in um, you know, 80s and 90s, 80s, I, I wrote 78, but in 80s and 90s in Staten Island, um, you know, they also had a little bit of the desire for me to assimilate. They wanted me to, they didn't teach me Indic languages, Hindi or, or Tamil or anything like that. And they were like, oh, we want him to, you know, we want mm -hmm. me to kind of just feel very comfortable and, and the society to accept me as American. You know, obviously I was born here, but the point is they didn't want any kind of disruption in that journey, you know, my journey. And then now I look at, you know, growing up now working in Queens, you know, next generations and generations of immigrants have come in, you mm -hmm. know, recently or recently-ish, um, you know, how the, it's empowered to like, you know, continue to not, you know, they're, they're more empowered to retain Mm -hmm. uh, their culture than I think my parents felt at that time. Um, and I see younger generation Indian Americans uh, knowing different languages and being very versed in the culture, more, perhaps more than I was, or at least uh, tr practicing it more than I was growing mm -hmm. up. And we went to temple and all that. Yeah. But, and my mom, at least, thankfully, my mom was inquisitive as well. And she was interested in, um, and she still is interested in the rationale behind traditions and, all this kind of thing, but mm -hmm. the differences between generations and how uh, is something very interesting. How when immigrants come here, whether or not they retain their culture, and to what degree do they continue to, with their children to continue to investigate or interrogate that culture, and and to what extent can you with you know with with the price of being looked at, looked upon mm -hmm. as being different, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's a very interesting topic and very interesting uh, area. Yeah, if you have any more comments, then I'll I'll try to pull up. You said Johnny Clegg. What was the name of the song that you scatter? The Crossing. What was the song that you were saying about apartheid? Oh, Asim um, Bonanga. That might be it. Yeah, Asim Bonanga. Okay, yeah. I mean, all, right. mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, or my hope with that is that we are moving towards, uh, you know, more not and not tolerance because sometimes I hate that word. Mm -hmm. Like to tolerate someone is not actually a really good <laughs> thing. I'm like, and I'm like, no, like to, but to embrace mm -hmm. that it's it becomes a safer and safer country to embrace like 
our heritage and our differences and our diversity, because especially with creativity and the arts, you know, whenever there's an influx of people from a different area um, or a wave of immigration or people do have refugees come in, like the the benefits to um, that place and 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 especially within the arts is huge because for creativity creativity is all about diversity of the brain about activating as many parts of the brain you know as possible Mm -hmm. and this idea that um hopefully you know it's it's becoming more and more embraced that you know you can bring everything from your past you can bring the weight of your past and the 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 shape of your past and that you know that it can ever evolve because like that to me is is the most american thing in the world is that yeah. you have you have so many different kinds of people coming together underneath this very entrepreneurial you know mm. spirit and you know com- growing up in california in northern california we have the you know these legends of these like tall tall legends of like paul bunyan and the san francisco 49ers not the football team but the actual 49ers <laughs> who came out during yeah. the gold rush yeah and how like just imagine how like brave and wild and entrepreneurial you know that was and i think this idea of people who are willing to like leave all of their physical items behind but carry the weight of everything they know to go to a new place and build new things and that to me is what i love about you know this country and what i feel like the the spirit should be and and is and has been in the past and i and i hope we continue that yeah i definitely think that uh the strength of american society in america is that diversity is strength and that we want to bring the best of everything and we Mm want to kind of monopolize and, and, and maximize our potential by accepting new influences and accepting influences from outside the box, you know, and we think about thinking outside of the box, but that, that comes from accepting and, and bringing in uh, di- varied perspectives and different perspectives, oh, you know, and kind of, and having that look at the same yeah. problem, essential problem, which is the, the experience, the common experience, mm-hmm. the shared experience that we're having in here and now, you know, and having that various perspectives. Well, there's a great pattern it. of this. Like, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley now, which is like yeah. the new gold rush of like the, you know, the internet boom and, and everything that's happened now. And this idea that, you know, the, the new outsider comes in and like creates the thing. Like I, I remember when we were like, yeah, Amazon, screw you, big name stores. I'm getting my books off Amazon, the small guy. And now, of course, yeah. in the most American fashion way possible, Amazon has become the big guy. And so I'm like, what's the next new mm. outside thing that's going to come in and revolutionize and rebuild? And I just see that happening like every 15 years, like that's what's going to happen. And that, that should be embraced and that should be celebrated because that's the way that we move forward is, is by building something up. And then when it starts to crumble, we build something up even stronger and it moves us forward. And, you know, I, I think that's exciting, although terrifying for anyone who has Amazon stock, which I feel like is everyone <laughs> at this point. In time. Yeah. And um, also, I do want to give you a chance to I want to give a chance to talk a little bit about Nelson Mandela and how he uh, his speech was one of the major things that one of the, one of the speech he uh, gave was one of the thresholds at which you broke for your or tell us a little bit about kind of your experiences with uh, his speeches and such. Yeah. Yeah. So after Mandela was arrested, they were he was put on trial in a famous trial called the Ravonia trial. Mm hmm. Um, and he spoke for three hours from the dock. And that speech, the transcript, it was banned for public consumption. But because I was a law student and studying um, terrorism and that kind of thing, 
I was able to access it. And after I had read it, it not so much opened my eyes as to confirm what I, what I truly believed. Yeah. Because the narrative the South African government was putting out at the time was that the ANC and Mandela were, were just terrorists. They're trying to destroy the country. They're trying to kill people. They're trying to make the country ungovernable, which in a sense they were. But Mandela in his speech went through the history of the ANC. What gave rise to their struggle? They had tried, like Gandhi, nonviolent protest. They had tried negotiation. They had tried to plead. And it was only at the point at which they realized that there was actually no negotiating with this monolithic government that they decided on a course of um, violent protests. And they aimed their violence at government properties. They, uh, they planted bombs in um, government buildings, power stations. Um, and it was never their intention in the beginning to harm people. Of course, as in all of these movements, there's going to be collateral damage, and there was. But it was such a clear statement of a very principled person. And, you know, his famous last line was, you know, this is a principle for which I hope to live for, but it's also a principle for which I'm prepared to die. Um, that gave insight into the man and his movement. And uh, it just affected me very deeply. Yeah, it's incredible. And I think that it's so important like when we, when we listen to really open ourselves to, um, you know, it's not just a question of learning new things, but it's also a question of really being empowered to remember what we have inside of us and really being empowered. That power comes from that. I think that what I'm getting which saying that empowerment and that understanding and the deep empathy and deep understanding of the truth, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess also it might be helpful if you figure out what you're willing to die for. It helps you yeah. understand how to live. You yeah, know? exactly. Yes. Yeah. As someone who's felt directionless multiple times in her life, that's, that's sort of what I think that for me, I'm like, oh yeah, like what, what would be the things that I'd be like, I'd be willing to die for this and maybe I should put my energy and my creativity towards those things. That's, that's, that's really hard to to say that you would be willing to die for something. Yeah, that's why I'm like, mm. I'm searching my soul right now. I'm like, yeah. mm, we're going to have to spend some time meditating on this one. Yeah. But it's it's a I think it's a worthy meditation, you know. Yeah, I think definitely the values and the, the um, it's just, it's, it's, it seems so abstract to be like, it, you know, when we think about, you know, circumstances and such, but it, it, you have to really kind of key in on the compass and the and the values that are, so important, you know, and that that are, that you'd be willing to do anything to defend <laughs> and things like that. So, and like and and go and really getting deep into that that truth and feeling like that that's something that under any contestation we must keep that truth right in, in the, enshrined. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's a principle, like I said, that 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 it's not easy to come to that decision. <clears throat> yeah, you know, Gandhi did it the one way. Mm. And his followers were willing to take unbelievable um, 
bear unbelievable pain mm. and even death. Yeah. And same with uh, Mandela and his and and uh, the ANC. So I'll do a few quick announcements, and then we we still have a little bit of time. But um, you know, this is this show, Truth to Power show, is uh, sponsored by Radio Free Brooklyn, or, or under the auspices of Radio Free Brooklyn. Radio Free Brooklyn is a five hundred one c three nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community, promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent continues to help us uh, to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are taxable, deductible to the full extent of law. Again, that's readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. You can also go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash shoot to power to sponsor this particular show if you really uh, appreciating the message and the uh, the guests and all that. So please just go to RadioForBooking.org slash Truth to Power and put down sponsor this show. And then you can sponsor this particular show uh, to help us alleviate costs of dues. Um, also, as you may already know, one of the few ways Radio for Brooklyn is able to generate revenue to keep our station on air is by offering affordable podcast recording services to people in the community. So if you're listening to the show and thinking, oh, I'd like to, like to try my hand at starting a new podcast, um, you want to get yours out of the kitchen into a professional studio where it belongs. RFP offers a low hourly rate, which includes a technician. So all you have to do is show up and record. Um, and thank, a special thank you to our live listeners. We're offering an amazing discount through September 1st. Use the coupon code TTP when scheduling, and you'll get 20% off the cost of your first recording with us. Go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash podcast studio. No spaces, podcast studio, and enter the coupon code TTP. To get your discount. Um, also, there's an opportunity for a special uh, prize. So write into Truth to Power Show at Gmail for two tickets to a, a music performance on August 10th uh, at 10 p.m. Uh, from Mexico with Love, which is a performance from a previous guest at this on this show. Uh, so if you'd like to win tickets, please write in to Truth to Power Show at, at uh, gmail.com. And just tell me your favorite episode and why. Uh, tell your favorite episode of Truth to Power Show and why. And then uh, I'll be giving away uh, uh, two tickets to um, the uh, music performance in New York City. Uh, and I'll, give, I'll send you the details at that time. So um, thank you so much, guys. Uh, any last uh, last shots, uh, Wes Words? Yeah, I will just remind everyone that if... They, if anyone wants to go on the crazy journey into their unconscious mind and see what stories and characters are living there, um, I encourage you to go to meditativewriting.org and uh, join me for one of my workshops coming up. And I'm welcome to direct anyone to any of your uh, social media or anything. I, I would like to just give a shout out to Newtown Literary Alliance. We put out a journal twice a year. <clears throat> Big pun. We also... <clears throat> We also uh, offer free writers' workshops. Uh, they're all in Queens, by the way. So, um, But definitely we do a lot of good work, and uh, that, that's a good thing for us. Yeah, really great. I think uh, Newtown has been a really great uh, uh, magazine. I hope people you know, all over the world can, I think, can go to the Newtown Literary uh, website and try to you know, order copies of their mm -hmm. journal. And then, uh, you know, definitely look them up. And, uh, and those, for those of you in Queens, you can submit to their journal, all this kind of good stuff. And people can, um, you know, definitely supporting 
small small presses and uh, local presses. Thank you. So I decided to switch over to Asimbanaga. By butchering that name, but anyway, um, yeah, we'll listen to a little bit of that from Johnny Clegg uh, as going out. So thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. <laughs> La pecona, la prefericona. Oh, no.